Good morning, everybody, and welcome again to Encounter. My name is Dirk, and I get to be the preaching pastor here at the church. We are in uh, part five of five of our series called Weird, and it's our study on the book in the Bible, First Peter, towards the end. And we're going we're gonna to get to that content here in just a moment, but I want to put something on your, on your radar, something that's coming up uh, next week. We start what I think is going to be a really, really formative uh, series together. The name of the series, we haven't done anything like this before. It's called Why I'd Walk Away. And it's kind of an acknowledgement that we're in a season right now uh, in a world where, where people are walking away from the church. Uh, some of you have maybe read some articles uh, called The Rise of the Nuns, which is, it feels like a horror movie close to Halloween. And it's like, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S. It's like the, the people who are reporting like no faith affiliation whatsoever. And those numbers are like doubling each each generation, and people are walking away from the faith, walking away from Jesus. And so we thought, like, let's speak into that, right? Let's, uh, let's not shy away, but let's take a big old magnifying glass and take a look at what that movement, what that phenomenon is all about. So part one of the series is, uh, is hey, like, when we walk away from faith, what is it that we're walking away from, and what is it that we're walking toward? Part two in the series, some gods are worth walking away from, some gods, you have my blessing to say, no, 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 that's maybe the God of my childhood. He doesn't actually exist. It's time to leave him behind. Uh, part three of the series, A Reason to Stay. It's going to be one of those series that if you've got somebody in your life who's maybe kind of on the fence of faith and maybe not sure about a couple of things, it would be the perfect series to invite them to. Honestly, if you're like, no, I'm in, I don't really need that, you're going to encounter these conversations with people at the office, around the table, around Thanksgiving time, uh, and I want you to be prepared. So it's a good series for you if you're going to be asked those questions, if you're going to ask yourself those questions. These are tough things. Let's do it in community. Let's do life together. Why I'd Walk Away kicks off next week. Uh, today, though, we're on part five of a series called First Peter. And if you'd like to follow along, First Peter is in the back of your Bible. It, it, easiest way to find it is honestly to go to the, the maps and the concordance in the back and then kind of move back from there to First Peter. And, and we're going we're gonna to take a look at this, um, this content this morning. But I want to let you know, kind of, this is, this is my warning ahead of time. This is the most encouraging message that you didn't want to hear. The most encouraging message you did not want to hear this morning. And the reason why I say that is because, as a reminder, if you've been tracking with us, First Peter, he's writing to a specific group of people called exiles, uh, people who are living as Jesus' followers in this world, this world that is not their home. Now, to be an exile, we don't really know a lot about today because we're like, okay, we, we've been in places that aren't our home. Like, we've, we've been in foreign countries, maybe, as a tourist, right, to like check some things out, to, to maybe go see a site or two, get brunch, have dinner. And then it was very comfortable, it was very easy, it was enjoyable, hopefully. The worst part was the travel, and then you come on back home. And Peter's going, no, no, you are not a tourist in this place. It's not meant to be that kind of enjoyable. At the same time, others of you maybe have come here from another country, and you're like, I know what it's like to be an immigrant. I know what it's like to find a home in a place that was not my original home. And it's going, no, no, we're not immigrants to this world either as followers of Jesus. This world is not our forever home. We're exiles. We're here, many of us against the, our will. We don't want to necessarily be here all the time, and it is and it will not be be our forever home. Like, don't get too 
comfortable. That's what it means for Peter to write to us and say, hey, listen, you guys, we are exiles in this place. There are some things that are not intended to be comfortable. In a word, you could say, Jesus never promised us a healthy life. He never promised us a rich life. He never promised us an easy life. Jesus never looked at us and, and, and promised us that things would always just kind of worked out. He never looked at us and he never said, hey, when you freshly install that white carpet in your living room, your kids won't wander over with red juice in their hand. He didn't say that. He didn't say your favorite football team is always going to be broadcast on the same streaming network every single week. Do we have any Michigan fans? Three different networks in three different weeks. Like, you're killing me over here, right? He never promised us this easy kind of life. And when things get hard, we're like, I'm out. And so what I'd like to do this morning is to to acknowledge maybe the one promise that Jesus did make in light of the subject area this morning. In John 15, when Jesus is in an upstairs room with his disciples and he's giving him some of these last words before his last supper, before he's arrested, before he's killed, John, one of his close friends who wrote the gospel we know of as John, remembers him saying in that apartment, if the world hates you, remember they hated me first. And the promise that Jesus gives is that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you as well. And it's a, it's a strange word for us to hear in 21st century USA. But we look at Jesus and we're going, oh man, they did. He was not 24 hours from being nailed to a cross, unjustly so. If they persecuted you, me, they'll persecute you as well. And it, it's kind of in light of all of this that, uh, that Peter's going to give us that will give us this message. We're talking this morning about when things get difficult, specifically uh, when things get difficult for our faith. And I just want to be upfront, and I want to tell you what our takeaway, in case like somebody asks you, you know, what was the sermon about this morning, and you just nailed it, right? Because it went up on the screen. The takeaway of our time today is don't panic when you face opposition for your faith. Don't panic when you face opposition for your faith. Panic when you don't. Opposition for their faith is expected. Don't panic when it comes. Panic when it, when it doesn't happen. And these words we get from, uh, from 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, verse, uh, kicking off here in verse 12. And I got my, my fun little iPad going on, on the screen uh, to help us out here. Uh, I want to highlight a couple things on the screen. We're kind of moving through here. Uh, normally, we kind of stick around in just one chapter. We're going to actually do the last two chapters of Peter because I want to... I have a message from like every installment of this thing as we kind of move on here. I don't want to leave any out. Uh, okay, so Peter starts off and he's talking to his exiles, he's talking to his people, and he's talking to all of us as well. And Peter starts off, he goes, uh, dear friends, and the first thing he says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you face opposition. Don't be surprised when you face persecution. Don't be surprised at the interesting choice of words, fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Uh, don't be surprised at this fiery ordeal. Don't, don't pretend. Don't think like this thing is, uh, this thing is entirely new and entirely, entirely strange. It, it's an interesting choice of words. We're going to have Peter this morning a couple of times kind of reach back into his mind and like just pick the perfect word. He calls it a fiery ordeal. He uses that image a suspiciously large number of times in a little letter like he has in 1 Peter. 
probably because most scholars believe that the letter of 1 Peter was written in AD 64. Some of you history buffs might be familiar with another big event that happened in AD 64. A fire broke out in the capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome, and just kind of swept through. It burned up a third of the city of Rome. And according to legend, we have this picture of the emperor at the time. His name was Nero. That is this picture of while the city was burning, Nero is up here and, he, and he's fiddling. You know, Nero was fiddling while Rome burned. And I'll tell you, that's probably not true for a few reasons. Number one, the violin wasn't invented for another thousand years. Uh, number, number two, Nero was actually an accomplished lyrist. Uh, he played the, the lyre. It's kind of like a, like a guitar. So he didn't, he didn't watch as Rome burned. He didn't, he didn't play the fiddle. He played the guitar while Rome burned. Now, we don't have specific evidence or like an eyewitness that said this was the case, but you kind of back up and you see how this legend kind of came to be. And the fact was that Nero wanted to rebuild the city. He looked over his, his palace and he could see, particularly in the southern district, it was kind of, kind of poor, uh, kind of down, down on its luck. It was a bit of a slum. And so Nero looked at that and said, well, we need to get rid of that. And so he proposed to the Senate that all of it just gets leveled, just demolish all of it. Like, what about the people that live here? And he's like, not my problem, just level the whole thing and let's just rebuild it. And there was obviously a backlash on that, and the Roman Senate is like, no, absolutely, you can't do that, we won't let you. And rather than kind of fight that, he just goes, okay. And a little while later, wouldn't you know, a fire breaks out in the southern district, exactly the, the place that he wanted to level and rebuild. And instead of like marshalling his entire world-class army to like put this thing out, no, no, he lets it burn for three days after it kind of spreads through and after all of the damage is done and the rubble is there, okay, now we can put out the fire and guess what he does? When he rebuilds it, he builds himself a nice brand spanking new palace right in the center of all of that formerly rubble. I share this with you just to kind of highlight the character that Nero was, the character that Nero had. This is not somebody that you would be, you'd like to be found on his bad side. He killed his mom. He banished his wife over issues of infertility, banished her out of the Roman Empire, which was like the entire Western world, like all of it. Like, where's she going to go, you know? And he's like, not my problem. Again, banishes her. When there's this public outcry, because wouldn't you know it, she's more popular than he is, and they want her back. He goes, okay, she can come back. Accuses her of, uh, her of adultery and then has her executed. Not a guy you want to be found on his bad side. And as Rome was burning and people were looking for somebody to blame, he goes, I've got it. It was the Christians that started the fire. And Peter writes his letter and goes, I'll be surprised. Don't think that it's strange. I'll be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Don't think it's strange that people are blaming you for it. I like that he uses a specific word, but I think it might need some updating for our context today because what Peter is doing, and he's going, he's, he's naming the opposition in their life. He's naming the difficult thing for them. And we we should step back and we should realize that there's a couple of things that are difficult for us today that also need to be named. Again, it's difficult for us maybe in a Western world 
maybe in the U.S. and Michigan, to, to like think about like, come on, like persecution, you know, being blamed for burning down a city. Like, like Christians, Christians don't have that here. Maybe not. Maybe not as much. But globally, globally, we don't even think about this stuff. The BBC, British Broadcasting Company, not exactly like your, your bastion of Christian news, but the BBC put out an article a couple years ago and said, we are living in near genocidal times as it comes to Christians being persecuted for their faith around the world. 240 million, Ameri- oh, sorry, 240 million Christians live in places outside of the States, outside of North America, live in places where that's hostile to Christianity. About 3,000 Christians die for their faith every single day. 10,000 Christian buildings are destroyed or heavily damaged because of what they stood for every year. 4,000 Christians are incarcerated or detained, held against their will, without due process, without trial, every single year. Again, because of the beliefs that they hold. I think if Peter is writing a letter like this to to the world... He would write a letter and just name some specific trials, some specific acts of persecution that are taking place in the world. If Peter's writing it today, he's saying, hey, Nigeria, don't be surprised if Boko Haram comes and and drags some people in your same town away from you and you don't see them again. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange when that sort of thing happens because we all know that it does. Don't Don't think it's weird. Don't think it's surprising. Don't think it's strange when somebody takes you to a North Korean prison camp because of your convictions to follow after Jesus. It's not strange. It's not unusual. Don't be surprised at that sort of thing. Are you guys like a little bit closer closer to home? There is a family that we have worshiped with, a family that has been in our community and worshiped with us for almost 10 years, which is pretty close to the entire existence of this church. This family was our brothers and sisters, family of five beautiful family that loved Jesus and served wholeheartedly in just about every serving context, every ministry in this place. Uh, Dad was here for his theological education, uh, one degree after another. That finishes sensing the call now to go back to Nepal, to go back to this south side town near Kathmandu in Nepal. I'm going to start a church. Honors this community by saying, because of how I was shaped and formed here, I'd like to name this new community, this new faith community, Encounter Church Nepal. Not weeks from when they land and set up shop, and it's, it's a humble beginning, not unlike ours, worshiping and living with, with some instruments and reading scripture together and talking about what God is saying. A humble beginning. Not weeks from setting up shop in that apartment, this, uh, this mysterious edict gets distributed in this, in this little town on the south side of, of Kathmandu saying there's, there's going to be no musical instruments, there's no singing, there's no dancing, and there's no worshiping of any other gods whatsoever except for this one specific Hindu god. He's got a family member who comes up to him and says... I don't like that you're here. I don't like that you're back. If I hear any music coming out of that apartment at all, I will personally hire thugs to come in and break the instruments in half. And it won't speak of what happens to you. Don't think it's strange. Don't be surprised. 
when thugs come in and break the instruments in half? When your worship is outlawed? It's a a difficult world to follow Jesus globally. I share that with you just because like there's a perspective on ours that we need that we need to gain. Uh, number one, like we got to realize how how good we have it, like how easy we have it in light of things. We think my life is not so hard to be a Christian globally. It has never been harder to be a Christian. Are we praying? Are we praying? I hope so. Along with that, we recognize that opposition is a bit of a range. And and I want to name some of the hardships about following Jesus around the world. And I got to do this like delicate balance of also naming. There are some sacrifices that are going to have to be made today, even even in the Western world, even in the States, on what it means to take up our Christ, what it means to follow Jesus in the world that we live in today. It's it's probably not true that your commitment to follow Jesus is going to mean a family member gets arrested or worse. It could mean because of your commitment to follow Jesus that there's an opportunity that's lost, a deal that's lost, a job that's lost. It's probably not going to mean yourself or a family member who's going to lose their freedoms, who's going to be imprisoned without due process. It's possible that your commitment to following Jesus means, hey, listen, there's this... There's this party going on, and I want to be there, but I just happen to know the kind of stuff that's going to happen to be there, and it's in direct conflict with, with my convictions as a Christian and trying to live a life worthy of the calling that he, has, that he has put on me. And so maybe I should, maybe I'll miss out on that. Like, this opposition and this sacrifice, we, we recognize that there is a range to it. And so when it comes, when the sacrifice comes knocking on us, we're going to tell ourselves those same words that Peter was asking his exiles thousands of years ago. And we're going to remind ourselves and we're going to go, I'm not surprised. I don't think it's strange. I'm not surprised. And I don't think it's, and I don't think it's strange. So I got a, I got a kid who, uh, who just started, uh, Last year, he just he picked up the sport of lacrosse. Some of you might be familiar with uh, with how lacrosse. It's like a mix between hockey and football. It's like all the the violence of both uh, kind of put together, <laughs> combined with with metal sticks, <laughs> with a little basket on the end. You catch you catch a little rubber ball, and uh, it, it try to score goals along the way. He's in fourth grade, and he picks up lacrosse for the very first time, and it, it's it's kind of hilarious because. Just making some broad generalizations, okay? Because we've got a lot of athletes, and I respect you guys. But, like, soccer is a sport where, like, gravity isn't exactly, like, working so much against you, right? Because, like, to dribble the ball, to catch the ball, you know, it's, it's, like, on a field. So it's a little bit easier for kids to learn. Lacrosse is, like, you're fourth grade, you got a metal, four-foot metal stick, and you're trying to catch a rubber ball while other fourth graders are running into you. <laughs> right? Like, there's a learning curve on here, you know? And some kids are, like, out there, and it looks like fourth grade, they've been playing lacrosse, Roughly 20 years or so. I think they came out of the womb with a little lacrosse stick in hand. Like, this is just what they were built for. You know, others of them are like, this whole thing is totally new to me, right? And so there's a range, okay? And we go to the, the games, and it's a big team because, you know, it really blew up. And it's, it's fun to watch as well. So you get some kids that are out there and they're scoring goals. They're doing their thing. Other kids are like on the bench, 
You know, and they're like, I, I don't go in for a while, and uh, I'll, be, I'll be fine over here. You know, there's a rotation, there's a subbing pattern. And they're kind of hanging out, and they start to, like, do stuff. You know, the game that they like to do, and you just watch them, there's a bench, and it's hilarious to see. They've all got water bottles, and so they start doing the, like, flip, you know, like the flippy water bottle game to try to, like, like land it, like, right on the, on the bench. You know, and they get one, you can all see, like, they scored a goal or something. They're all like, ah, we, yeah, we did it, we did it. And it's like, oh, they just, like, scored against us, we're losing. You know, but our team is, like, celebrating. You know, they get like two in the row and they're like high-fiving and it's a good time. And then they're in a circle and they're like cheering each other on, which is great if it was like the game on the field instead of the water bottle flippy game that they're playing on the, on the bench. But these kids, like half of them now because of the circle have their backs to the game that's taking place out there. And so you can just kind of imagine if you're coaching on the other team and you're going... If, if you're one of the players on the other team and you're looking at those kids playing the water bottle flippy game with their backs to the game, do those players look like a threat at all? No, not even close. They're not even going to get asked to go in because they have barely even any idea like what sport they're playing. The other players, like they're not going to think that they're a threat in any way. But then the other kids, the kids that are like fourth grade, have been playing for 20 years, a little facial, share, facial hair showing, you know, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm 39 and like not a small person, but I'm pretty sure if I got out there, I would be beat, not just in the scoring, but also with those metal sticks. Like they could take me, right? Just push me right over. I'm like, I wouldn't stand a chance. And there's these kids that are dug, ducking around, you know, and cradle and do the thing and passing. And, and you see, as soon as one of them gets the ball, it's like swarm, swarm, swarm. Like every player just, just, just jumps on them. Not because they can take the ball. They can't. No one can. <laughs> but just to slow them down a little before they get to the goal and inevitably score again. Are they a threat? Yeah, how does the other team respond to them? Swarm, 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 right? You guys are going to go to the Saturday morning games and watch these kids. I want to invite you to think of the spiritual reality that is playing out on that field. I want to invite you to consider it. Maybe if you can look at your life and you're going, I see no opposition to my faith whatsoever. I can't name a single thing that my commitment to following Jesus has cost me. I can't name a job that it's cost. I can't name a relationship. I can't name even much time other than showing up at church once in a while and they provide the coffee. So like, I kind of like it. I can't think of anything that following relationship, I can't think of a single time opposition has faced me for following Jesus. And I want to suggest to you that it's possible you're not like totally following Jesus. It's possible you're not playing the game. You're off on the bench and you're playing flippy water bottle game. And you're not engaged in the mission at all. And some of you are going, man, I am showing up here every Sunday and I am tired and I am exhausted. And the world out there has just it's like taking a four-foot metal stick and beating me up by fourth graders like all week long. That's how I feel because of this commitment that I've had to follow Jesus and what it has cost me. And I'm like, welcome to the game, friend. Borrowing some words of Peter, I am not surprised. And I, and I don't think that it's strange. Because you sit down and you start to do life with some of the people around here and you're going to realize that things get hard. And you can sit down with some people around here who are like, man, I, I'm trying. 
I'm just now starting. I thought it would be easy. I thought it would be encouraging. I thought at least the first few steps would be good, right? And, and I signed up for this rooted group, a small group at church, and a huge part of that thing is like daily devotions every single day, spending at least a few minutes in, in the presence of Jesus, just asking him what he wants of me and how to spend my day. And, and I sit down and I'm gonna do this thing. And it's like, as soon as I open up that book, the phone starts blowing up and the kids start yelling from the other room. And I'm like, why can't I focus? Why am I so distracted all the time during the Stevos? And it's like, it's possible somebody knows you're no longer over here playing the flippy water bottle game and you're, you're in and you're engaged and now you're a threat and the opposition comes in. And like, that's what it looks like. I could introduce you to people who are like, man, I had a date and it was going well and then we started talking about the things that we wanted in the world and the kind of person that I was looking for and the kind of relationship that I wanted to have and maybe some of the boundaries along the way and this is for dating and this is for marriage and this is my, my, my faith convictions and I want to move in the same and wouldn't you know it, there wasn't a second date and I'm kind of used to that. I could introduce you to people who said, my, my industry, it is just basic practice to overpromise and underdeliver it's what everybody does it's expected but for me it's not a sales practice for me it's my integrity i can't do it and at the end of the quarter i can i can go back i can count up the clients i can count up the sales that it cost me because i wouldn't speak of fiction not going to lie, because of my commitment to follow Jesus, I am not playing flippy water bottle game. I am engaged. I'm playing to win. It's going to cost something. Don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange. But I did start off this time, and I, and I said, this is the most encouraging message <laughs> you didn't want to hear. And you're going, I just got the part about not wanting to hear it. I check. <laughs> What about the encouraging part? Let's come back to our text. And uh, same, same slide here. We got uh, f- chapter 4, verse 12. And let's keep on reading here and moving right on to, to verse 13. You know how, like, somebody tells you not to do something and you just want to do that thing immediately? I'm not the only one. No show of hands, but, like, you get it. You get it. All right? You know, don't think of a pink elephant and now we're all, there it is, right there, pink elephant. You've got your design. Draw it up. I'd love to see it. Tag me online. It's not enough, it's not enough for Peter to go, you know, don't, don't think it's strange. It's not enough just for him to tell us what not to do. He's also, he's going to tell us what to do instead. So he already told us, don't be surprised, right? Don't think that it's strange. But it's connected, being surprised with, but rejoice. Don't be surprised, don't think it's strange. Instead, rejoice. Replace being surprised with this posture of rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you may be, again, he doubles down on it, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. These things are connected. Not being surprised and then rejoicing and overjoyed all together. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice when these things come to happen. Why in the world would I rejoice when things get hard? Why in the world would I rejoice when opposition comes? It's like, it's like this pattern that starts. And you can kind of like start to picture this pattern of like, okay, when life, let's see if it's familiar to anybody, when life start, is really comfortable, when life is really good and really easy, and we start to face opposition, we avoid that opposition. We don't want anything to do with that. 
And so life continues to be nice and easy, and faith, just like every other muscle in our body, starts to weaken and starts to atrophy as a result. And we run, we continually run away from that opposition. We, we fall away from Jesus because the faith is weakened and atrophied. We find that life is kind of empty and meaningless, and the only way that we can fill it is by pursuing more of our comfort and whatever comfort looks like to you. I mean, that's, that's like the drug of choice. And so it's just this like circle, this wheel of like, I'm comfortable, my faith atrophies, life is meaningless, and I just want more comfort. And we wake up one day and you're like, I get why we do a series, why I'd walk away. <laughs> why is faith worth holding on to? You know, but, but on the other side, if we live boldly and we, we speak out for the faith and we can name some of the things that it costs. We face opposition we participate with the sufferings of Jesus as it moves us closer to him. We experience Jesus. Our faith like a muscle is strengthened and then we continually, we live boldly again. And it's like that cycle continues to like build up and build up and build up. In other words, and some of you have experienced this firsthand as I have because I'm, I'm, I'm approaching 40 and some people might call that middle-aged. I wouldn't, Okay. I had this argument with my, with my wife a little while ago, and, uh, and, and she referred to me as a middle-aged man, and I'm like, whoa, okay, I'm 39. I'm not a middle-aged man. And she's like, cool, cool. How long do you think, like, you're going to live? <laughs> so we decided middle age is 40, and I'm 39, so I'm a cool 30-something. I'm hanging on, hanging on to that. But as a nearly middle-aged man... Um, I've, I've, I've been to a physical therapist. <laughs> and you know, where, if you've been to a physical therapist, you know where this is going. Because at some point or another, you, somebody that you love, just give it time, and you're going to wake up, and you're like, I slept wrong there, and now I can't move my shoulder. And the most instinctual thing that we can do at that moment is like, cradle it, right? Baby it. Seek out whatever comfort that I can for my shoulder, and just kind of hope that it'll get better. Hope, by the way, is not a strategy. We hope that it gets better, and then it just, it gets worse, because the muscle starts to atrophy, it all starts to seize up, and pretty soon we realize it's not, like, so much painful anymore. I actually can't move my shoulder anymore, and then you go and see the pain and torturist. I'm sorry, (laughs) physical therapist. And they start yanking on that thing, right? Prescribing exercises, and it's it's horrible. Like, why would anybody want to do this with their life? Gonna get some emails after this. But like, over time, you know what happens with the stretching and with the muscles that are getting built up and sometimes torn to like replace back better. You get your mobility back. You get your range back. You you start to get your life back. And it's going, guys, the way of Jesus is no different than that. If we pursue our own comfort all the time, The only thing that we're pursuing with our lives is just us, and it's small, and it's petty, and it's not worth it, and you're going to realize that, and I hope you do sooner rather than later, but if you live this bold life and making these risks for Jesus and actually putting some things on the table, you're going to find that that faith gets strengthened over time. Opposition, when you find it, opposition brings you closer to Jesus not farther away. And that's that paradox of the gospel. Wayne, uh, Wayne Cadero, he's a, uh, he's a pastor out in New Hope Church in Oahu, Hawaii. And you're like, Lord, find me faithful, you know? 
But uh, this, is, this is a guy who, uh, he, goes, he goes to China. He goes to hang out with these Christian leaders of this underground church. And there's 22, 22 of them in the room. And, uh, and he's like, I, I know that these, this church is underground for a reason. He goes, why? What would happen if we were like caught right now? Somebody comes in. And he goes, we've seen it before. The group responds, you, you would be, you'd be kicked out. You'd have 24 hours to leave the country. We would go to prison probably for three years. They might even come after our family members, depending on how much they wanted to, to crack down on. 22 people in the room. How many of you have been to prison for your faith? 18 of 22 hands goes up. Wow. They start their, uh, their training session, which is three days long, 14 hours a day, sitting on the floor. And midway through, okay, turn... <laughs> Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 is the verse that they were going to look at. And he brought 17 Bibles with him. So math, five people didn't have a Bible. And they're kind of like sharing, right? Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, this woman takes her Bible and she just gently hands it over to the person that's sitting next to her. And she, just, she listens intensely. He finds her during one of the breaks and he goes, I saw what you did over there. You handed over the Bible. Why is it that you hand over the Bible to the woman sitting next to you? And she goes, Oh, it's, it's good. Second Peter, I have that memorized. I didn't need a Bible because I, I have it here. When did you memorize Second Peter? And she goes, in prison. In prison, I didn't have anything else to do, so I committed these things to memory so they couldn't be taken away from me. Didn't they take away your Bible, though? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if they see me with a Bible, they're absolutely taken away, and they did which is why people would come by and they would take these little scraps of scriptures of God's word and they would like sneak them in and it was incumbent on us to internalize those and to memorize those as quickly as possible. And she goes, Second uh, Peter, First Peter, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like these are the ones that I have committed to memory so that nobody could ever take them away from me. You know, three-day conference, training for 14 hours a day on the floor in the heat. He's getting ready to, to go back home and he asked them, how can I pray for you and, and keep on praying for you? And the response that he gets from one of the attendants is, here's how you can pray. You're going to go back to a place and you can just do this. And you can all worship together and you can pray together and you can sing together and nobody's going to come in and break the instruments over their knee. Nobody's going to get arrested. We want so badly to be like you. Can you pray for us that someday we would be like you? And he said, absolutely not. He goes, because where I'm from, half an hour is pushing it. An hour is out of sight. Nobody's driving three hours. I'm looking at the clock right now knowing if I go to 40 minutes, I'm going to hear about it. We're going to hear about it. It's a little long, a little long there, Pastor. You know, the air conditioning is off. Sound wasn't quite dialed in. And he goes, I don't want that. I don't want you to have what I have. Because you are so much stronger than what we are. Because you have participated with Jesus in the sufferings. Rejoice in that. That might not even be encouraging enough for the most encouraging message you didn't want to hear. So 
So I'd like to end it with our selection from 1 Peter chapter 5. When Peter is now landing the plane, he's wrapping up his message and he says, okay, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And this line, in Greek, it's all one sentence. We have to know that. It's all one sentence. He continues, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And we say it all the time. If you want to know that God can, and if you want to know that God cares, there's an empty grave that shows that God can, and there's a cross that says he cares for you. And he goes, so cast your anxiety. You recognize you leave today, and you might have a commitment to follow Jesus, and it's going to cost you something. If you can't name it, that's okay. We got to start somewhere. I want to encourage you to start at this place by just praying and just by asking him, God, what is it that you want me to hand over to you? Challenge me. Those two words, challenge me in some way, and he will. He will. It's a courageous thing to pray those words, challenge me. But the anxieties are going to come as a result of that. And so Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him. And I mentioned this thing about how Peter is really particular about the words that he uses. And he does it again in verse 7. It's so good. And when you realize these aren't just words on a page, but they're words that live inside of a person and that come out of a person, co-authored with God, the Holy Spirit, and his human agent writing them down, and that comes through. Peter, does anybody remember his job? Pre-disciple, pre-apostle? What's his job? Fisherman, right? Casting is a fishing term that he uses. He just reaches for the image that's the most natural thing for him literally translated from the Greek that I had to learn in seminary, and I'm fine with it. Uh, Literally translated, that word cast, translate into hawk it into the sea. Paraphrasing slightly. But hurl it. Like, don't just toss it. Get it out of here. Throw it on here. As hard as you can. Like a fishing rod, or better yet, for Peter, it's for that net. That the further you can get it out into the sea, the more effective it's going to become. Cast that anxiety out there onto the Lord. Take that fear that you have. Maybe it's over the opposition that you're going to face. Maybe it's just over Monday. Maybe it's over the setbacks that your kids are experiencing right now. But take that anxiety and hurl it on into the sea and say, God, this is yours and you have to own it because it's too much for me. But then me, probably like a lot of you, I don't huck it, I don't hurl it, I'm not casting anything into the sea. What I do is like toss it. I don't throw it out there in the sea, I just move it over a little bit because what I want to do is I want to go back over after I say amen, you know, I put it on God and I say amen and I go over and I like pick it up and I bring it back home and I'm like, come on anxiety, we're going to hang out together, you're my pet. I know I'm not the only one who does. I don't hurl it. I don't cast it. I toss it just so I can go back over and so I can pick it up and I can hang out with it. And I'm like, that's good, God. You got too much on your plate already. I don't need you to burden with me with my problems, right? This blew my mind earlier this week. And this blew my mind. It's deeply convicting. And I don't think I'm going to be the only one. But remember, I told you in Greek, this is all one sentence. And some of you, you you learned a thing or two about about grammar, and so what we have here in this word cast, cast is a participle modifying the main verb, and you're like, I knew I should have paid attention in language arts growing up. That's what, I got you, friend. I'm glad you're here. A participle modifying the main verb, which is humble yourselves. That's the main verb. Humble yourself. And now that you're humble, you're humble yourselves, you can do that by casting some of those anxieties into the sea. Which means that throwing your 
anxieties into the sea is a kind of humility. Throwing your anxiety on God is an expression of the humility that you have. Invert that, and if you're like me, you don't cast, you toss, and so you can go back over and you can kind of pick them up and take them home with you again. That's the opposite of humility. That's something called pride, of saying, God, I don't want you to be responsible for this outcome. I want to do that. I don't trust you with this whole thing. I trust me. And that's called pride. And we've got a saying around the office here all the time, because sometimes we hold these events, like Teams Day, we like, like, like Rooted, like Fall Launch. We, we do these days, and we're like, I have no idea if this is, anybody's going to show up. I've got no idea if, if really this is going to bless anybody at all. And like, you guys, we got to know something. The saying around here that, that we have in the office is, obedience is my responsibility, outcome is God's. When you sit down today and you're asking him to challenge me to face some kind of odd position so my faith can be strengthened, you remember that your responsibility is just your obedience. And God will do what only God will do. I want to invite you, church, to to stand up and we're going to close in prayer and then we're going to recognize this time in communion together. Uh, Jesus, we, uh, Lord, we pray that these anxieties and these fears that we have, maybe it's a loss of some kind of provision or promotion, a place in life, a relationship, whatever it's going to cost us to follow after you, that's an anxiety that we have. Help us to toss that to you, to cast that to you, not to toss it. Help us to trust you with the outcome, Lord, and just simply be obedient in the next few steps. Jesus, we invite you repeatedly to meet us in this place, knowing you're here the whole time. In your name we pray, amen.